what kind of dreams do you have? Do you, uh, watching that, do you feel like that maybe there were some dreams that went away, that, that maybe when you start to see those words, they start to come back? What are your dreams? Uh, you know, a couple weeks ago when there was a billion-dollar lottery going on, everybody's thinking, oh, what would happen if I won the lottery? You know, what would I do with all that money? Travel, quit my job, buy all this stuff, give it away, all these things. What are, what are your dreams? Uh, when you hear the phrase, live in the dream, what comes to mind? Is it a particular place? Is it uh, maybe freedom? Is it, is it uh, things that you can acquire with that money from the lottery? Or is it something different? For the next seven weeks, we're going to work through the book of Philippians. Uh, and we're going to explore that concept of living the dream. Except it's not going to be the American dream, the, the American dream of more, more power, more money, more stuff. Instead, it's going to be that we're going to be taking a look at what God's dream is for us. It's a dream that results from pursuing a life fully devoted to following Jesus, to giving him complete access to our heart and to our lives. Um, not to good things, not to philanthropy, but a dream of following Jesus. Uh, the reason that we're going to look through that lens is because this little book that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi is a, is a letter that's written not to scold or to chastise, but it's really written out of love for the church that Paul had. I want to take the next few minutes and just kind of give you the, the foundation for how that church in Philippi started, because it's going to, it will be a foundation that allows us to to not just think about the letter to the Philippians, but to really have some, some people in mind um, in that process. If you've got your Bibles, if you want to take the ones out of the pews, I'm not going to show this on screen, but we're going to start in Acts 15 just real quick, and then Acts 16 overview. In Acts 15, there's this conflict that exists between followers of Jesus who are Jewish and followers of Jesus who are Gentiles. The Jews, uh, uh, this group of people said, oh, in order to be a follower of Jesus, you've got to become Jewish. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to obey the law. You can't be a Christian unless you do those things. And then there were others that said, no, that's not the case at all. God poured his spirit out on the Gentiles, and you don't have to become a Jew in order to become a follower of Jesus. In Acts 15, when you look at that, you'll see the counsel that takes place at that point in time. And the end result of that is they say, no, you know what? God has poured his spirit out on everyone. You don't have to obey all the laws in order to follow Jesus. God wants your heart and, and he has, Jesus' blood was shed for everyone across the board. So then you go to the beginning of Acts chapter 16 and Paul and Timothy... Silas and Luke begin a journey to go out to the churches that had just been planted in the previous years to, to tell that message to them, to say, you don't have to become a, a Jew in order to, to be a follower of Jesus. They go out on this journey. Paul, Paul has this deep desire to go to Asia and to start to preach in Asia, and the Holy Spirit says, no, you can't do that. And, um, and so Paul ultimately has this vision where this, there's this guy in Macedonia that says, come to Macedonia and help us. And Paul says, you know what? That's the Holy Spirit. We're going to Macedonia. So they hop a ship. They go to Samothrace. They end up in Philippi in this town, uh, the city that's on the edge kind of of the Roman border. Philippi is a place that was populated primarily by veterans of the Roman army, 
army. They would go, they would be stationed there, and then they'd settle there. It was a, it was a city that had all kinds of um, industry, all kinds of business, lots going on there, but very few Jews, interestingly enough. When Paul ultimately gets to Philippi, Paul's process that he usually uses to go um, to, to preach would be that he would go to the synagogue. But he gets to Philippi and there's, there's no synagogue. So instead, he takes his guys and he, they go to the riverbank because they, they know that there's people in town that go to the bank of the river to worship God. And there they find this group of women that are there praying and they begin to talk about Jesus. One of those women is, women is a, a woman named Lydia who sells purple cloth. She's a businesswoman. She's type A kind of personality. She's a go-getter. She makes things happen. She's, you know, wearing high heels with her toga. Uh, you, you got that picture. She's, a, she's this high-powered gal that's there. Paul shares with her, and it says that she was a believer in God, and Paul leads her to Jesus. Lydia is baptized. Her whole household is baptized, and that's the start of the church in Philippi. In the, in the coming days and weeks, Paul continues to preach and speak. And, and in Acts 16, it tells about this, this girl who had the power to tell fortunes. She was a slave. She was, she was sold into human trafficking. And there are guys that own her. And they, um, as she would tell people's fortune, they would take the money. This gal, um, every time she saw Paul, would say, these guys are servants of the Most High God. Listen to them. They're going to tell you the way of salvation. And Paul would, you know, should shout that and shout that and shout that. And Paul would go to another place and should follow him along and say, these guys are servants of the Most High God. Listen to them. They're going to tell you the way of salvation. Um, and it's, it's, it, it was irritating. Did you ever have kids that did the repeat thing? <laughs> you know, that's what's going on with this gal who's a fortune teller just following Paul everywhere all the time saying the same thing. Um, and it's, it's interesting that uh, what the scripture says, um, she kept saying, this is verse 18 of, of Acts chapter 16. She kept saying, she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit inside her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. This, this gal that's just this irritant to Paul um, because she ke just keeps yapping and yapping and yapping. Paul casts the demon out of her and all of a sudden her life changes dramatically. She doesn't have the ability to tell the fortunes anymore. And, her, and, the, and the guys who owned her get really, really mad because they've, Paul has taken away their source of income. They bring Paul and Silas in the center of Philippi, and, the, and they say, look what these Jews did. And immediately, as soon as they do that, they're playing the race card, okay? All of a sudden, they're creating this division in Philippi to say, these guys are not like us. They're different than us, and they're causing problems. They've cost us this money, and they create this riot in Philippi. People start to get angry, get angrier. They ultimately beat Paul and Silas with, with rods. And in your mind, picture what's going on. There's this girl who's been delivered of a demon, but everybody's angry about it. And this mass of people that are just pummeling Paul and Silas. Ultimately, the, magi the magistrates of the city, the leaders of the city, uh, give Paul and Silas over to the jailer. And the jailer, the Philippian jailer, throws them into jail that day. Uh, 
they're there. Uh, Acts 16 says that their feet are placed in stocks. It's not the kind of, they're not the kind of stocks that like we think of in Williamsburg, you know, where the, you've got the piece that goes over there. They were actually um, uh, contraptions that, that were contraptions of torture. They would twist your legs in funny shapes hold them there while you were while you were chained in place and so it wasn't just that you couldn't move and run away it created this horrible tension on your muscles on your legs that 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 was just incredibly painful and in the midst of that paul and silas are praising god they're singing hymns in jail counting it joy that god would choose to allow them to be, to, uh, uh, to be punished, to be um, beat up, to, to suffer for Jesus' name. In the middle of that night, um, earthquake comes, breaks open the jail, and, uh, and, and Paul and Silas are freed from their chains. Everybody's f- free to go. And the Philippian jailer, the jailer in Philippi, is ready to kill himself. Again, look in Acts 16, and, and you can kind of see what happens. Um, I, when I was growing up as a kid, I learned, I learned real early, why was he going to kill himself? Well, he was going to kill himself because the jailer was responsible for his prisoners. If the prisoners were released, um, the jailer would be executed for that. And yet when you read the New Testament and when you read history, you read that there are lots of times that prisoners, that, that um, guards lost their prisoners and they weren't executed. So it seemed like it was inconsistent. Here's after studying this week, I, here's, the, here's the deal that I think is very interesting about the jailer. The jailer is probably a military veteran. That was the population of the city. Um, he, was, he was a guy who probably went home at night, sat down in his recliner, drank his beer, and watched UFC. Okay? He was that kind of guy, but he had in him this deep commitment to honor and integrity. He was duty-bound. You know, he was a Marine or a Navy SEAL or something like that. And he had this tremendous sense of honor. And he knew that if his prisoners got out, it wasn't just that he could be punished, but that he was going to have to live in the city among his friends, among people that he had served with. And he would be the guy who let his prisoners get away. So he's ready to kill himself. And Paul and Silas say, eh, no, 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 no. Everybody's all here. Nobody has left. We're all here. And the Philippian jailer is astounded by that because his commitment to honor and duty has been outdone by these guys who have been beaten up and thrown in prison. Their sense of honor and duty to Jesus, compelled by love, is beyond anything that he can grasp. And he brings them into into his home um, he's, he says, what do I have to do to be saved? They explain to him, he and his household are baptized that night. He brings them in, cleans up their wounds, fixes them a meal, and it's an incredible, incredible thing that happens. The church in Philippi is launched with three very different kinds of, of uh, conversions. First, you've got Paul with Lydia explaining from Scripture who God is, who Jesus is, and Lydia, Lydia chooses to follow Jesus. It looks to me like it's a very rational process for them, for her, for her family to come to Christ. 
In the second case, Paul cast a demon out of this servant girl. Her life is radically transformed by the power of Jesus, by the power of God. In an instant, her addictions are gone. That power of the demon, the, the ability for Satan to work in here, is gone completely. Her life changes dramatically in an instant because of the power of Jesus. The Philippian jailer has this deep sense of duty and honor. And God speaks to him in that sense of duty and honor through Paul and Silas in jail, not running away when the earthquake comes. God speaks to him when when the jailer who could have heard them singing, his house was probably built into the jail. He would have heard them singing praises to God through the night. Um, He may have been irritated by that because they'd been beaten up. And yet when the earthquake comes, the jailer turns to Christ and his life is radically transformed. That's the beginning of the church in Philippi. It's an incredibly cool story. Let me, let me just share um, some quick lessons from that that I, th- that I think are there for us to see from Acts 16. Um, the, the first thing that I think that's there about the foundation of the church in Philippi is that God calls people from all kinds of backgrounds. Very, very different. That's incredibly cool. God calls people from all kinds of different backgrounds to follow him. Second thing, and I I hope that you've seen this, is that God calls people in a variety of ways. The way that God reaches out to people is different. For, for, uh, somebody may say, oh, you know, I've got this incredible testimony of how God came to me, showed himself to me, and you think, I didn't have that at all. I just kind of heard somebody preach and it made sense and I chose to follow Jesus. And somebody else says, oh no, I had this kind of experience. It, it wasn't that, it wasn't that, it was, it was completely different. That's the way God is. God chooses to reach us, to speak to us in our own wiring. Lydia, a businesswoman, uh, active, a thinker, a mover, a shaker, Paul, who was also a thinker, a mover, shared directly with her, and she got it. She chose to follow Jesus. God calls people in a variety of ways. Third thing, and I think this is a a really cool thing about the church in Philippi, God does his best work in the worst conditions. God does his best work in the worst conditions. I say that as a word of hope this morning, because I know that some of you out there are are in a place that you're struggling, that there's all kinds of stuff that's just gone wrong in your life. There, There are all these things that seem insurmountable. Know that God does his best work in the worst of conditions. What do I mean by that? Paul, when he came to Philippi, Paul's system The thing that Paul did consistently was that he would enter a city, he would go to the synagogue and preach in the synagogue. There wasn't any synagogue in Philippi. It would have been very easy for Paul to say, there's not enough Jewish people here for me to worry about. Let's just go on to a different city instead. He didn't. He looked for other opportunities, other ways, went to the riverside, and there found this group of women that were interested in following God. Um, when, When Paul casts out the demon... Well, even before that, Paul continues to preach and he's speaking in Philippi and there's this irritating girl that everywhere he goes keeps yapping her mouth. And she's saying truth, but she's just getting in in the way. Paul was greatly annoyed with her. And it would have been easy for him to say, I've had enough, I can't deal with this girl anymore, I'm going to go someplace else, and left the city. It was, it was difficult. When Paul and Silas got beat up and thrown into prison, 
It couldn't hardly get any worse than that. They're beaten with rods. You know, their, their bodies are busted up. They're thrown in chains in prison. It would have been easy for Paul to say, no more. We're out of this city. God does his best work in difficult conditions. And what's cool is that this church that, that is launched in Philippi is this unbelievable group of people that Paul loves deeply. The fourth thing that's there for us, I think, in the, in the launch of the church from Philippi is this. Radical conversions create deep bonds, deep connections, deep love for each other. In, the, in those conversions that took place with Lydia, with a Philippian jailer, with the, with the fortune girl, the girl who could tell fortunes, there was this deep sense of connection, of affinity, of love from Paul for them and them for, for Paul. Paul loved these guys. He was a key part of their conversion, of, of God's story in their lives. He had seen firsthand the transformation that took place from their previous lives to their new lives. Have you ever been a part of God's story in somebody's life and seen that kind of change? Maybe, maybe God called you to adopt, and you look at those kids and you realize that what their life would have been had they not been adopted would be radically different than it is right now. Maybe you sponsor kids someplace around the world, and you recognize that those kids would be facing a hopeless future were it not for the money that you send to help make sure that they get an education and learn about Jesus and that their medical needs are taken care of. Maybe God used you as a leader in a, in a small group, in a life group, and in the context of that life group, people took incredible steps in their walk with Jesus. You saw their lives change as, they, as the Word of God got in their heart and began to transform them. Maybe, maybe God used you, and you were the instrument that God used when that person was baptized when you shared in the power of their death, burial, and resurrection, their connection with Jesus in that at their baptism. And that in that, you, ex you were deeply connected to their conversion experience. How do you feel about them even now when you look back on those people? Maybe you were a coach. Maybe you were a teacher. You saw a kid go from being really shy and reserved to all of a sudden having confidence and being able to, to uh, use the abilities that God had given them. How do you feel when you think about those, those men, those women, those children? I, for me, it's, there's this incredible sense of gratitude that God would choose to use me as an instrument of his power in somebody else's life. That was Paul's connection to the church in Philippi. The church in Philippi was diverse. It was, it was racially diverse, uh, Jews, Gentiles, um, Asians, Europeans. It was a mix of people that was there. And, um, and it was socioeconomically diverse. You've got this girl who'd been sold into slavery and, and this woman who's a high-powered businesswoman. It's got all kinds of people in it. Paul's visit to Philippi probably takes place in 49 or 50 A.D. Over the next 10 years, he's back there probably two more times, we learn from Scripture, um, over the next 10 years. And this letter is written in about 60 A.D. 
Here's what I want you to listen for in the first 11 verses as we think about living the dream that God has for us um, through the book of Philippians. Listen for the affection that Paul has for the church in Philippi. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers, the elders, and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, that you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be, bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you all are partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God's my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. How it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what's excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul loved this church. Can you hear it in those words? He, he writes as a response because this church had taken up an offering and sent it to him in the hands of Epaphroditus. We'll see that a little bit later. But he, he also, so it's kind of a thank you letter. It's kind of a missionary letter. But more than that, it's just this letter of connection that he's writing to good friends out of, out of the fullness of his heart. Paul loves these guys because he had invested in them. He had shared in their conversions. It's important to know this. Um, life change, life change happens best in the context of relationships. Sometimes God changes us just when we're off by ourselves. But for the most part, God works through the relationships that we have in order to get a hold of us and help us see his truth. That's why it's so important to be connected to other followers of Jesus, to be invested in the lives of others. That's why life groups are so important here at North Point. In the context of relationships, life change happens. If, if you're trying to survive spiritually on, on an, hour, an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday mornings, coming in and going out, you'll never make it. Because we need to be connected to other people. We need to um, let people in and see the real us. We need to drop the facade and allow them into our lives. We need to share meals together. We need to, we need to um, share what's going on inside us, our, our struggles, our, our challenges, and share our, our, um, our thrills, our victories, our celebrations as well. I want to I point out three truths from those first 11 verses of Philippians that for me, when I read that passage, the, the three things that jump out to the, me the most are, the, are these. The first is this. If you're pursuing Jesus, if you're pursuing Jesus, God is working in you and he's the one who's going to do everything possible on his end to bring that work to completion. God is working in us. And he's going to do everything he can to bring that work to completion in us. God is not in the business of leaving us alone, leaving us on our own. 
Um, if, I could, if I could use this illustration, I, it, for me, it works real well. I like doing puzzles. I, you know, I like doing the 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 piece puzzles. There's this picture that when we, when God made us, he started this process of putting the edge pieces in place. And all of our lives, he's taken those puzzle pieces and putting them into place to create this incredible masterpiece that is our lives. When we're pursuing God, when we're listening for his voice, when we're allowing him to work in us, those puzzle pieces are just flying off the table and into the puzzle. That puzzle begins to take shape and look incredibly cool. When we pursue our own dreams, when we're running our own agenda, it's the struggle that seems to always happen when you do a puzzle. Puzzle pieces get knocked on the floor. The dog ends up eating the puzzle pieces, right? The puzzle pieces end up in the vacuum cleaner. When we do our own thing, when we're not pursuing God, that process of the puzzle being filled in gets all out of whack, all out of kilter. God is faithful. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That's not a job that we can do all on our own. It's not something that if we can just do the right things, if we can take the right steps, everything will be good. God is the one who does that. But we need to respond to him. We need to pursue him as well. Do you remember when you first, when you first heard that God loves you, that he has an incredible plan for you, that Jesus died for you? That's the beginning of God reaching out to us. And from that time until now, he's working in us to draw us to himself. He's not done with you yet. Um, I don't know if you know it or not, but I'm a football fan. Um, <clears throat> and, and if you think about in a football game, what happens as the third quarter ends and the fourth quarter gets ready to start? If you look on the sidelines, most every team holding up four fingers a reminder to everybody on the team to say it's the fourth quarter. We're not done yet. The game's not done. We're not finished yet. We've got to finish strong. We've got to complete the task. That's the picture for us. God is faithful to complete the work in us if we'll let him. Second thing that's there is um, I, in those verses is when Paul writes to the Philippian church and says, may your love grow more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That word love, may your love grow, is the word agape that we talked about last week. It's this self-sacrificing love, a love that gives and gives and gives and doesn't expect anything in return, a love that, that, that costs in order to be able to give. I, I, um, I, I saw a post, I think, this week of um, a wife that went home after church this past week, and her husband said to her, honey, I agave you. And she said, Agave is not the right, agave is a sweetener. I think you mean I agape you. And he said, oh yeah, that's it, I agape you. Uh, it's this self-sacrificing kind of love that God, that God calls us to. Understand this, God has called us to love people who are very different than us. The church in Philippi was radically diverse. And God has called us to love people who are very different than us, people who look different people who come from different backgrounds, people who have different value systems. We know that the church in Philippi pictured that, that diverse multicultural, multi, or diverse socioeconomical, socioeconomically crowd. 
Um, that church probably had some strange people in it, but so do we here at North Point, right? Um, Paul says to the church in Philippi, may your love grow, love one another, prefer one another, serve one another, be devoted to one another. And they did. That pictured, that captured that church. That comes as a result of following Jesus. When we give our hearts completely to Jesus, that love just flows out of us because God's love flows to us in that way, that agape kind of love. It comes naturally, but it also comes as a choice. We make the choice about who we love, who we invest in. We make a choice about whether to love someone who looks differently than we do, somebody who smells differently than we do. That's a choice that we make, but God is the one who births that inside that. How do we, how do we grow in our love for one another? We spend time with people. We invest in them. We ask questions to hear their story. If you've got somebody that God is calling you to love that you think, I just am not like them at all, just ask questions. Ask them to tell, about, uh, to tell their story. Ask them to tell about when they were a kid. Ask them to tell about what makes them tick. Ask them to tell what their values are, what they, what's important to them. That love produces in us knowledge, discernment. It gives us the ability to love more and more and more. This is the last thing and, and probably the most important. We're talking about living the dream. God's dream. God's dream for us is that we would be blameless and pure, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. God's dream for us is that we would be blameless and pure, filled with fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. Is that at judgment? Is that when we stand before God? Absolutely, because there's not anything that we can do to earn our salvation. There's not anything that we can do to make us good enough for God. Only because of Jesus, because of his death on the cross, can we live, can we be blameless and pure at judgment. But, but also, God calls us to, to live blamelessly and purely here on earth now as well. He calls us to make choices to say no to sin, to say no to temptation, that allow us to be spared some of the consequences of those bad decisions. Are we going to be perfect? No. Can we use that reality as an excuse for sin in our lives? The answer to that's no. Pursuing Jesus, living for him, it makes it easier to allow Christ to come in and, and to, uh, uh, to, to live above and beyond temptation, above and beyond sin, to live blameless and pure. Sometimes I think when, when I read through Philippians the first time and was thinking about this series, when I hit this verse, I, um, this was the thought that is in my mind. I think as followers of Jesus, we have done a miserable job at living blameless and pure in our culture. I, don't, I, I think so much of the time, we don't look or live any differently than the rest of our culture, and God calls us to more than that. Jesus' death on the cross was made so that we wouldn't look like everyone else, so that we wouldn't be the same. How do we know how we're doing? Uh, Paul says, uh, you know, when you live blameless and, and pure, there's going to be the fruit of righteousness, fruit of the spirits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control. God, is, God, as a result of his spirit living in us, those elements are just going to bubble up in our lives. They're going to be evidence. They're going to be the fruit that's there. The word righteousness means that we choose to do the right thing, that we live rightly before God. Paul's prayer for the church in Philippi, that they would be blameless and pure, filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's our challenge. That's what God's dream is for us. That's what it means to live the dream. Um, God's dream for us is so much bigger than our dream for ourselves. It's so much bigger than our dream for, him, for ourselves. We, we think, oh, if I can just, you know, if I can just make it to heaven, oh, that'll be so, God wants so much more than just getting by here on earth. Take a look on screen at this video as we, as, uh, we land the message today. <laughs> 